Thanks, everybody. Welcome back. Uh, welcome back to um, uh, to the Mythgard Academy. And we're on the fourth class now of the Return of the Shadow. Uh, and I am... Uh, I'm I, I'm excited because tonight we're going to meet uh, Tom Bombadil uh, and talk about that. So anyway, it's um, uh, it's it's yeah yeah it's gonna be pretty cool. But before first before we before we get into that, uh, let me uh, let me start with. Uh, announcements. Um, a couple uh, very important announcements going on here. Uh, the things going on this week that you need to be aware of. Number one is tomorrow, Tom Shippey, Beowulf Seminar. So Tom Shippey is doing a seminar on, Beow on, uh, on, Be on Tolkien's Beowulf, uh, specifically looking at Tolkien's Beowulf uh, translation and notes that were published a couple years back. I, I, it, like, I'm telling you, Take my word for it. If you don't, if you don't see this seminar, you're going to regret it for the rest of your life. So, <laughs> to, to just do it, um, if you go to, um, uh, if you go to the uh, signumuniversity.org homepage and just scroll down a little bit, you'll see the events thing, and there's a big Tolkien's Beowulf thing. You'll see it right there. The link uh, it to uh, register is right there. Um, so it's it's going to be. It's going to be awesome. Uh, I'm really, I'm really excited about that. So, uh, so remember that's at four o'clock p.m. Eastern time. Uh, uh, Doctor Shippy lives in lives in England, so uh, uh, Europeans, you can be all excited about the fact that it's not. <laughs> I knew Yana was going to be excited about that. Uh, yeah. Anyway, um, so it's 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 going to be awesome. So highly recommend, uh, going to see, uh, the, uh, the, the shippy seminar. So, okay. So that's one thing. Thing number two is that the spring semester of our Signum courses starts on Monday. We're, we're, we're coming all of a sudden, uh, right up to it. Um, and it's, uh, that, you know, there are several big, uh, uh, courses that we're doing. One of the things which I know a lot of people have been really excited about is, uh, is something that people have been looking forward to for a really long time, is our Introduction to Old Norse class. Um, we've been trying to do Old Norse for a while, and uh, we, we, we have, we finally have actually, we've uh, uh, in fact, uh, we have uh, one of the protégés of Dr. Shippey actually, uh, 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 he introduced uh, me to our lecturer there. Uh, anyway, um, he is doing. Uh, uh, Dr. Carl Anderson is doing. Uh, is doing the introduction to Old Norse, uh, and it's it's going to be great. So if you've ever wanted the opportunity to to study the the you know Old Norse, the you know the the, the poetic Edda, prose Edda, you know all of these uh, these poems and stories that you know were so influential uh, for Tolkien in his life. Um, you you know if you if you want to be a coal biter. Uh, uh, Lewis and Tolkien were both in this uh, group called the Coalbiters, which got together and and like did translations of Old Norse uh, uh, stuff together uh, uh, when they were at Oxford. Anyway, um, definitely, definitely look into it if you want to know how to register. Registering is a little bit more complicated this this year than before. We have a new system, but it's all good. It's going well, and we've got lots of uh, lots of people enrolled. So, uh, what you need to do: go to signumuniversity.org again. Um, on the top of the page is the, the the blog entry. Go to go to our blog. The 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 
the the top hit there on the blog uh, is about the exploring the Lord of the Rings class, which has also been great fun. Uh, but if you go to the next one back from that, uh, it's the 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 detailed information about how to enroll, and it gives you the link if you want to enroll to audit. It gives you the link uh, for how to register and do that. So uh, I hope that you will. Uh, look into doing that because it's uh, it's, it's going to be a great opportunity, great courses this semester. Uh, so I hope you will you will look into that. All right, and yes, uh, Josiah, um, the Shippy seminar will certainly be recorded for people who can't see it live. Absolutely. Um, uh, yep, yep, absolutely. Oh, and uh, and uh, uh, so we have uh, we have a couple chat room options. We have our traditional chat room on the Mythgard Academy page. Uh, if you go to mythgard.org to the uh, to the, the page for the Return of the Shadow class under the Academy tab, and there's the chat room icon, which I think is bouncing again. I think it's I think it's recovered. I think it's been cleared for physical activity again. Uh, so it's uh, it's back and. Um, uh, if you go there, you can join many of your colleagues here from the class uh, in uh, talking amongst yourselves. Also, I see that the Twitch chat is active as we're simulcasting on our on, on our Signum University Twitch channel. Good to see you guys. Hi, Druids Fire. Good to see you over there. Um, and uh, I see, yes, uh, Yana's over there recruiting uh, as well, so that's good. Uh, anyway, so, all right. Let's get back to the Return of the Shadow. Uh, because we have a bunch of really exciting things to talk about tonight, including Barrow White and Tom Bombadil, and also including. Uh, and I'm, by the way, I'm, I'm, I'm uh, brace yourselves. I'm gonna, I'm gonna do a, I'm gonna, I'm gonna say a controversial thing later on. I think I have, I think a, a, a pretty controversial, uh, or at least a, a, a slightly bold uh, uh, claim to make there. But anyway, okay, so. Uh, uh, but first we need to talk about the Three's Company chapter, right? Uh, the chapter which was, which was kind of rejected by Tolkien's initial readers for being too boring. Uh, so (laughs) we need to, we need to really dig our teeth, uh, into that chapter. Uh, so, okay, let's, let's, let's look at some things here. What's, uh, it was funny. It was one of those moments. I had one of those moments uh, in reading through the chapter again. I was reading through the chapter and I was thinking, "Oh man, I got to remember to go find that uh, that passage from from the letter in which Tolkien talks about how uh, you know he was so taken with Hobbit talk and could do it indefinitely, but other people didn't like it as much." And then as soon as I get to the commentaries at the end, Christopher quotes it right away, and I was like, "Oh man, thanks, Christopher. Glad to see we're 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 thinking alike there." Um, but, uh, uh, which is not always the case as we may see later on, but anyhow, um, so I I wanted to, I wanted to start with that. Uh, there we are. Okay. Uh, so three months after he writes this chapter, right, uh, on, uh, 4 June, 1938, he wrote to Stanley Unwin saying, I meant long ago to have thanked Rayner for bothering to read the tentative chapters and for his excellent criticism. It agrees strikingly with Mr. Lewis's, which is therefore confirmed. I must plainly bow to my two chief and most well-disposed critics. The trouble is that Hobbit talk amuses me privately, and to a certain degree also my boy Christopher, more than adventures, but I must curb this severely. Okay, so um, uh, so we can see this is sort of Tolkien's confession here, right? That he was enjoying, he just enjoys putting all of that Hobbit conversation, the, 
the hobbitry of these earlier chapters, right? Hobbitry, I think, was Lewis's word. He used that to refer to this thing, this kind of thing, right? All of this hobbitry. Uh, and I love the word, so uh, I'm, I'm fixing to use it uh, as often as I can. Um, but uh, anyway, so he suggests here, right, that he included too much of it, and he's got to cut it back. He's got to curb severely his own inclination to indulge in this kind of, uh, in this kind of Hobbit talk. Um, there are a couple things here that I would suggest, uh, that I want to kind of draw your attention to, or really remind you of. One is, let's not forget where we are, where Tolkien is at this point, right? Last time, in some ways, one of the overall reflections I had from, uh, you know, looking at these next few chapters, uh, you know, in detail preparing for class tonight, was the last chapter, the, uh, the, the Gollum chapter, can be a little bit misleading. That is, last class, you know, the, the stuff we were looking at in the last class, when the Black Rider appears, and then we get all that discussion of the Black Rider, and, you know, the, the conversation between Gildor and Frodo kind of grows into the conversation with Gandalf, and then returns to the conversation with Gildor and Frodo, right? Um, so, the, this, it gives the impression, I think, you know, we sort of, we had gotten to the point at the end of last class where we kind of have the impression that Tolkien now is on track, right? He's now got a, 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 a clear view of where to go. You know, it's now, okay, now we have the, we, we have an antagonist, right? That these black riders pursuing him through the Shire and all of those details began to come in, right? The black riders are ring wraiths. The ring wraiths come from the necromancer. The necromancer is the, the, the ring, you know, the bingo's ring is, is, uh, uh, is is the necromancer's ring, whether it's uniquely his one ring or whether it's one of his many rings, right? Uh, you know, is uh, he's kind of going back and forth on that. Um, but anyway, they're you know they're seeking him in order to reclaim the ring from him. This all see now. I, you know, we 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 were noting that we we have not yet gotten to the point of like, and so therefore your quest is to destroy the ring, right? We, we we've not gotten anywhere near that. The full significance of the ring of power and its domination over the other rings is not there. So there's there's still lots of stuff that isn't worked out. But it kind of it kind of looks like we're on the move, right? Uh, you know, it's uh, uh, you know we're we're headed off clearly towards the plot and concept of the Lord of the Rings, and we're not look, not looking back. I think that these chapters, and especially this first chapter, this Three's Company chapter, really kind of suggest that that's a little bit of an illusion, I think. Um, the forward momentum of this story, so when he, having like worked out all of that stuff in those various snatches of notes and conversations and things uh, that we were reading and looking at last time, um, you know, it having sort of so established that concept when he returns to the actual narrative right when he when he picks up the story again it doesn't have a lot of momentum really right i mean the, they're wandering around the shire they i mean we get the framework of what will remain right you know the shortcut the the pursuit the like you know we were both right you know right the 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 shortcuts gone crooked already but we got undercover just in time right they're going to farmer maggot and farmer maggot telling about seeing the black rider earlier earlier on and then them getting and finally catching up with marmaduke and and going and departing off to the old forest uh uh the next morning so again the, the shape of it 
you know, I, I, and, but again, that seems to me kind of illusory. What I, what I, what I see here um, throughout this chapter, really in the pacing and some of the events of this chapter, and especially with this kind of reflection on it, is that he wasn't, Tolkien didn't seem to be feeling a lot of narrative drive at this point. Um, at least that's certainly not the impression that I get uh, from this story. So let's let's kind of look and see. Um, um, let's just kind of look and see w- how this actually unfolds. Let's let's uh, let's look at some more some more detail, and I'll stop just kind of vaguely generalizing here. Um, uh, yeah, oh, Nancy, yes, Nancy's, uh, Nancy Fosberg points out that this is also a rare uh, uh, childhood Christopher sighting, right, where we get a, a reference to, uh, to my boy Christopher. Uh, you know, Christopher quoting a letter in which Tolkien talks about him as a boy. Uh, so, yeah, Nancy, we get this, uh, this uh, 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 indirect and brief, uh, you know, kind of uh, glimpse, right, of uh, juvenile Christopher. But um, uh, anyway, yeah, Brandon uh, uh, Minnick says that he really he, he loves the fact that Christopher loves this stuff too, the hobbitry, uh, and, uh, and and he says he, it makes his later career choice make a lot of sense, right? Yeah, yeah, it is uh, it is good to know that you know this has been all along a labor of love for Christopher, right? Rather than uh, sort of this uh, this duty that he's undertaken, um, and you know, and I agree. Several of you, uh, you know, Josh Ramsey was just talking about that. Um, uh, just sort of disagreeing with Lewis and Rayner, you know, and saying, actually, hobbitry is awesome. Who doesn't like hobbit talk, right? Um, yeah, uh, I don't know. I mean, uh, Hugo Tremblay was saying, you know, do I have the feeling that he was kind of on autopilot writing this chapter? And I mean, I don't know. I mean, I want to be careful. I want to avoid critfic and everything. I don't know exactly if this was easy or hard for him to write or whatever. But, but again, I, what I do see is that there isn't, as I said, there isn't a lot of forward drive in the in the narrative. Neither the characters nor the narration itself seems to be in any kind of an awful hurry uh, to to move or very clear what either what's happening or what's uh, gonna happen, right? So let's look at some uh, examples of the kind of thing that I'm talking about here, and the kind of thing that I think he's talking about when he talks about Hobbit talk, and which he thinks he needs to severely curb. This is right after they've left the road, they're on their cross-country trek, they're taking a shortcut, they're afraid they're going to get lost, they're already zigging and zagging and worrying that they're not going to find their way. They've seen a black rider in the distance and have heard one sniffing nearby, and this is the conversation they have in the middle of this. He lives in a house, Farmer Maggot, of course, answered Frodo. There are very few holes in these parts. They say houses were invented here. Of course the Brandybucks have that great burrow of theirs at Bucklebury and the high bank across the river, but most of their people live in houses. There are lots of these new-fashioned brick houses. Not too bad, I suppose, in their way, though they look very naked, if you know what I mean. No decent turf covering, all bare and bony. Fancy climbing upstairs to bed, said Odo. That seems to me most inconvenient. Hobbits aren't birds. I don't know, said Bingo. It isn't as bad as it sounds. Though personally I never liked looking out of upstairs windows, it makes one a bit giddy. There are some houses that have three stages, bedrooms above bedrooms. I slept in one once long ago on a holiday. The wind kept me awake all night. What a nuisance if you want a handkerchief or something when you are downstairs and find it upstairs, said Odo. You could keep handkerchiefs downstairs if you wished, said Frodo. You could, but I don't believe anybody does. That is not the house's fault, said Bingo. Um, uh, I think, Karina, I think this is really funny, too, right? 
Uh, I mean, I, it's not that I don't like this passage, right? I mean, this is kind of cool. But this is the kind of thing I'm talking about when I say that they're, they're, Tolkien doesn't seem to be... He's not evincing a great deal of narrative drive in this chapter. I mean, the kind, it's not just the fact that they talk or that they joke or that they tease each other or that kind of thing. It's the kind of... It's their choice of conversation topics, right? That... That you know, and it's, I'm not saying I find it unbelievable or implausible or anything like that. I'm just saying, um, you know, like a gripping adventure story. This is not right, uh, and they don't um, uh, they don't really seem to be uh, terrifically <laughs> worried about what's going on. They've they've just seen the Black Rider before they have this. Uh, before they have this conversation. Yeah, Nadia says, Bingo defending the honor of houses is my favorite. Yes, it's not the house's fault. Uh, I, <laughs> I, I, I I like that too. Um, and Tomas, I agree. Tomas says he's clearly enjoying himself as he was writing, and I agree. But again, what interests me is sort of the kind of enjoyment that he's having. And I would say, now here, here I'm going to, um, uh, this is, I'm kind of going to bracket what I'm about to say because it's a little crit ficky. I'm guessing. I have no idea. I'm not trying to assert this, but... Um, but this sounds like the kind of thing parts like this kind of feel more sequelish to me, right? I don't know. You know, maybe that's not where it comes from and maybe it's not, but the whole, you know, like what's do hobbits kind of going around, right? And talking and chatting and, and let's, let's kind of meet and get to know hobbits better because that's to me, one of the main trends that I see. Maybe I'm kind of biased in this direction because I've just been talking about that a lot in the last two weeks um, in my exploring the Lord of the Rings class when I've been looking at chapter one of the published fellowship of the ring um, and really focusing on all of the thinking through Tolkien has been doing since the Hobbit on Hobbit culture and the way that, you know, the, the, the relationship between Bilbo and the, the good Hobbits of, 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 of the Shire and everything, right? Um, so I've been talking a lot about that, so maybe that's kind of biasing me because I've been thinking about it a lot. But, um, but nevertheless, I mean, this, this, this kind of thing, right? Why, why are they talking about this, right? I mean, we see how it comes up. They're asking about whether or not, whether or not Farmer Maggot lives in a house. But what this reminds me of, this reminds me, um, this reminds me of the letters that Tolkien writes in the 50s, especially, like the late 50s and early 60s. Not really the 60s, especially the late 50s. That is, within the first five years or so after The Lord of the Rings gets published, and he's getting deluged with letters with people asking for more information. And there are a bunch of letters um, if you read them, and they're, they're, they're often terrifically long, right? But there are many of those letters in which Tolkien, you can see him, he answers the question, but I get the impression, I don't know for sure, but I get the impression that he is completely making it up as he's writing it, right? That is, he's, he's never really thought of the answer to this question before. But as he begins to give an answer to somebody the sort of sub-creative impulse kind of takes him over, and he ends up, like, writing and writing and fleshing it all out. One letter that, that, that comes immediately to mind is an illustration, and I don't rem remember the number. If any of you actually have the book next to you, you could tell me the number, and I could pass that on. Um, but it's the one where he talks about Hobbit birthday traditions. People were asking... Somebody was asking the question about, like, hang on a second, what if... if uh, 
if Smeagol was supposed to be a hobbit, why was he expecting to receive a present on his birthday instead of giving a present on his birthday? That was the, a, a, the very good question, uh, which was asked him by that reader. And, uh, and he gives a very long answer to that question, which does a very great deal of fleshing out hobbit birthday uh, traditions and, and different things about, about hobbit culture. Um, and again, and it just it sort of starts off as a, as a fairly simple, sort of, sort of seeming like it's going to be a fairly simple answer, and then he just goes on and on and on and on. Um, the more he thinks about this, the more he likes to work this out. Here we see, I think, a very similar thing, right? He's, as he's writing, he's working out, like, what... What is the thing with hobbits in holes, right? Why do hobbits live in holes? Or rather, what would hobbits who do live in holes, what, what would they think, right? What would their perspective on holes and houses be? It's just like an element of hobbit culture, which is there in the original, right? The seeds of it are in the hobbit, obviously, in Bag End, right? Bilbo lives in a hole. Why does he live in a hole? Hobbits live in holes, we know, right? But, like, so what? What does that look like? What does that show us about hobbit culture? That question he didn't answer. Right? He never really fleshed that out in The Hobbit, so we see him kind of thinking it through here. And he includes it in dialogue. Why not? There it is. right? And that's interesting. 214, thank you. Diego uh, and Robert, thanks. Uh, letter 214 is the one I'm thinking of. Thanks. Appreciate that. Yeah, the draft of the letter to A.C. Nunn. Um, and isn't it, Robert uh, and Diego, if I'm remembering correctly, isn't that one of those ones which is a draft, it's a phenomenally long draft letter that he never sent because he got so carried away in answering it that he was like, I'm kind of embarrassed now. Like, I feel like it seems like I'm taking myself super seriously. So he writes this enormously long letter and then doesn't send it. Uh, th that happened at least more than once. Um, but anyway, okay. So uh, uh, this that's the kind of impression that this sort of passage... Um, uh, was for me. But again, when thinking about this in the context of what it is he's doing here, right, of this story that he's writing, it's things like this which lead me to say it doesn't seem like he's he is Tolkien is being overwhelmed by the forward momentum of his story, right? Instead, he's spending a lot of time like, hey, let's flesh out this idea about Hobbit. Let's, think, let's talk about holes and houses. You know, let's talk about holes and... And let's talk about holes and houses... A lot, right? Because this is not it. They keep going. I have always fancied that the idea of building came largely from the elves, though we use it very differently. There used to be three elf towers standing in the land away west beyond the edge of the Shire. I saw them once. They shone white in the moon. The tallest was furthest away, standing alone on a hill. It was told that you could see the sea from the top of that tower, but I don't believe any hobbit has ever climbed it. If ever I live in a house, I shall keep everything I want downstairs, and only go up when I don't want anything. Or perhaps I shall have a cold supper upstairs in the dark on a starry night. And have to carry plates and things downstairs if you don't fall all the way down, laughed Odo. No, said Bingo. I shall have wooden plates and bowls and throw them out of the window. There will be thick grass all round my house. But you would still have to carry your supper upstairs, said Odo. Oh, well, then, perhaps I should not have supper upstairs, said Bingo. It was only just an idea. I don't suppose I shall ever live in a house. As far as I can see, I'm going to be just a wandering beggar. Oh, look at that! Notice how at the end of this conversation, finally, we kind of meander our way back into something relevant to the story. Oh, that's right. Actually, forget about the whole house thing, right? I'm going off, like, into exile. I just sold my house. I don't have any money. And so it's all completely moot. Anyway, anyway, as we were, right? That, that's, that's kind of the, uh, uh, the uh, direction that he, that he kind of goes. Um, 
And uh, uh, Karina, I agree. I too uh, strongly commend the practice of throwing your dirty dishes out of window. Uh, that seems to me a, a, a wholly practical and in, in an entirely admirable uh, housekeeping practice. I'm thinking of implementing it, except my kitchen is not on the ground floor in the back, so, you know, I, 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 it wouldn't help me much. Um, Stephen Cover says, is it taken for granted that all houses have second stories? Uh, well, no. I mean, there's, like, if you look back at the beginning here, right, there's uh, the new-fashioned brick houses, right? Um, no decent turf, turf covering all bare and bony. That doesn't, I, that, that might be like the the built imitation of smiles, right? But um, uh, but it, but in any case, uh, that certainly it, it, it's clear, Stephen, that the main objection that they have to houses is apart from the barren boniness of not being turf covered and everything, is that it uh, uh, it the, you know the, the the opportunity for multiple floors, which is obviously not uh, um, not not really something they're interested in. Um, Yes, and Lee, I was noticing that too. Uh, how he's reusing his line from Monsters and the Critics, his line ab- on about Beowulf, how from the top of the tower you can see the sea. Yes, uh, and that I suspect to be um, okay. Lee, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna sidetrack very briefly, though probably possibly not in the way that you suspect I'm about to. One of the things about reading these drafts, and I've talked about this with some of you, um, I don't know if you experience this too, but there's a there's a there's a slight bit of guilt associated with it, right? That we're reading these things that Tolkien would be mortified if he knew we were reading them, right? He never intended people to read all this stuff, and here we are, like it's all been exposed to the light of day, um, and I think he'd be f- pretty embarrassed if he knew we were reading all of these early drafts. Um, one thing. Lee, that to me is uh, perhaps a compensation, a sort of perhaps a posthumous compensation to Tolkien uh, for that embarrassment, is my guess, Lee, is that when he wrote that, I, 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 I cannot imagine. I absolutely, it is, it is impossible for me to conceive of the possibility that Tolkien was not thinking of that line from the Monsters and the Critics when he wrote that. Um, when he talked about seeing the sea from the top of the tower, he was totally thinking of Beowulf and what he had said about Beowulf in that in that article. There's just, I mean, uh, I'm I'm uh, I'm absolutely presuming that that's true. And since that's the case, um, it has that sentence has all of the sound of like an inside joke with himself, which he never like was sure no one else would ever get. Right, you know, and indeed it was kind of taken out later on. So, but yet uh, here we are, Lee, you and I both immediately getting it, right? Both immediately seeing that joke and appreciating sort of what he was doing there. And I think I, I'm not sure if he would consider our sort of perception and sharing in that um, that 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 kind of overlap compensation for the embarrassment, but maybe a little bit. Uh, anyway. Um, but um, yeah, James, you're right. James says uh, he understands the, uh, the the whole guilt thing, but uh, but points out that Tolkien did donate the manuscripts to Marquette University. It's true. It's true. Yeah. So so uh, to say that we're seeing things that he never uh, wanted anyone to, that like we're seeing them against his will clearly clearly that's not correct. He put them out there for people to see. So um, it's not that. Uh, he, but um, 
But there's a difference between they're going to be at the Marquette University Library archives and they're going to be published, right? That's, I still think that's kind of different, but it's okay. Um, anyway, anyway, anyway. Um, notice how this piece of hobbitry kind of shifts here, right? On the one hand, that first sentence on this slide here Again, this to me, just it sounds like a classic example of Tolkien kind of in, 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 in the middle of subcreating, right? I've always fancied that the idea of building came largely from the elves, though we use it very differently, right? So he's now turned, ha- having turned from the question of how, what do hobbits think about houses, right? And how do they respond to the idea of houses? He's now asking himself the question... Where did the habit of building houses, among, you know, uh, begin among hobbits? Why are hobbits building houses at all, right? Why is it that most hobbits now live in houses? How did that come to be? And now we're answering that question, right? That it came largely from the elves, right? Oh, okay. And this, of course, now Im- immediately... So when he's asking that question, where does it lead him? It leads him to... Well, I was about to say another story... Not exactly another story, kind of another story, right? But we have now this, not just kind of an abstract concept, right? By abstract concept, I mean uh, learning it from the elves, right? What I mean is, uh, he... The idea of these elf towers, right? The three elf towers standing in the land away west beyond the edge of the Shire. Uh, shining white in the moon, uh, standing alone on a hill. Uh, you could see the, t- the sea from the top of it, right? But no hobbit has ever climbed it, right? This, this is what we're beginning to get is like the hobbit, like the sort of the, the, the mythic status of towers in general and these particular elf towers in particular in hobbit culture, right? So we've gone from sub-creation to myth, and once we hit myth, where do we end up? We end up at the Silmarillion, of course, because those of, of you who did the Lost Road with me will remember the Elf Towers, right? Elf Towers on the, the, the western shore of Middle-earth, that's a thing, right? It's an established thing, right? Remember, it was the exiles of Numenor who built towers in order to try to find the straight road, right? Because if you go up on a tower, sometimes you can see. You can't travel it, right? But you can see along the straight road. To, to, to towards Numenor and to Valinor beyond, right? Um, and, I mean, is that what he's thinking of? Yeah, I'm totally convinced that that's what he's thinking of here. Um, and uh, uh, so, so we see his own, uh, you know, once he gets to myth, again, his own mythology begins to kind of to creep in here. Um, so, anyhow... Um, I'm not when I'm so I, I want to make sure you don't think I'm I'm just trying to knock these passages or, or sort of laugh at Tolkien for writing these things. Um, again, my premise initially was the kind of work we see him doing here, the kind of writing he's doing, the kind of like what he what it is that he's accomplishing in these passages. He's accomplishing lots of stuff, and it's interesting stuff, right? the tone of the banter of the hobbits, um, more information about hobbit culture and the way that hobbits look at things, um, hobbit mythology, uh, which touches upon the edges of his own Silmarillion mythology. All that stuff is great, interesting, 
fantastic stuff. But what it isn't is forward momentum of story, right? Somebody who was like, okay, ring rates, pursuing, ring, necromancer, okay, and, and is really now hitting the ground running wouldn't be doing this, I don't think, right? Um, at least, again, as I said, this chapter doesn't really show evidence. Uh, at least not to me very much evidence that he's uh, very, very forcibly moving in that direction quite yet. Um, exactly, Kit. He's 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 world-building. Um, but again, the whole tone of this chapter suggests to me that it's, that it's, it's not like... Time, I, we take this time out from the story to do a little world building, and then we'll jump right back into it. When he does jump back into it, um, it um, it doesn't really seem to be moving along much uh, much faster. So, for instance, let me show you uh, another thing of what I mean when I'm talking about the tone of the whole chapter. Um, the uh, the prank that Bingo plays on Farmer Maggot. Well, here's to your health and good luck, said the farmer, reaching for his mug. But at that moment, the mug left the table, rose, tilted in the air, and then returned empty to its place. Help and save us, cried the farmer, jumping up. Did you see that? This is a queer day and no mistake. First the dog and then me seeing things that ain't. Oh, I saw the mug too, said Odo, unable to hide a grin. You did, did you? said the farmer. I don't see no cause to laugh. He looked quickly and queerly at Odo and Frodo, and now seemed only too glad that they were going. They said goodbye politely, but hurriedly, and ran down the steps and out of the gate. Farmer Maggot and his wife stood whispering at their door and watched them out of sight. "'What did you want to play that silly trick for?' Uh, If I remember correctly, it's Frodo rebuking Bingo there in that moment. Um, "'What do you make of this?' Right? Again, this is... uh, Fugitives running for their lives, right? And we're, we're, we're playing completely needless prank. Okay, all right. I call the prank completely needless. I suppose that's easy for me to say, right? I'm not the one who was deprived of beer, uh, as Bingo was complaining that like he didn't get any beer, and so therefore that sort of justified the prank. Now he was kind of joking about the right. James was just remembering that same thing. Um, I. I, 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 yeah, again, this is not, uh, this is not very seriously. Now, you're right, Carson is right. Carson Coles reminds us here that Gandalf did say that jests are okay, right? It's okay to use it for jests, right? Don't use it for, for finding out secrets, for robbery, or for anything worse, right? But jokes, jokes are totally fine, or, or escaping from people that annoy you, right? That's also totally okay, at least in, in, uh, in, in one version of those, of those notes, right? Um, and, um, yeah, so it's, it's, um, so in that sense, James, I agree that it would seem that getting beer from Farmer Maggot is within the specified parameters of using the ring, unless it's theft, but I don't think so, right? I mean, it's, I, I, I don't think that would count as obtaining beer, uh, by theft through the use of the ring, right? Probably you can, if you want to, I mean, you'd have to sort of, um, you know, I mean, there'd be some lawyering you'd have to do with the ring to make sure that you're, oh, no, no, no ring. It wasn't theft, right? It was jest, right? It definitely counts as jest. You might, you might have to make the, might the, might the, have to make the argument, but, um, anyway, it's not merely the fact that he uses the ring to play this prank, right? Um, in the context of everything else that we've been hearing about, because, 
you're right, Carson and James are right, that it's it's not like it's a contradiction of what he'd been saying in those previous notes. It's not. To use the ring for jest is still okay. Um, it's the psychological fact that he would do that, right? You know, again, like, we're, we're, we're running from Black Riders. Black Riders are ring wraiths, and that's awful, and they are chasing me, and they're, I guess, servants of the necromancer, and they're coming after me. Uh, and, um, uh, um, and we're on the run, and these nearby, and Farmer Maggot said that they were just here first, and, you know, so instead of thinking, like, let's get the heck out and, and f- before we're found, it's like, no, let's not only hang around and drink beer and talk, but let's also, like, play very memorable jokes, right, which is going to keep this farmer talking about this event for, for a really long time. I mean, it's... um. Uh, it's, it's, this is, again, it's one of the things that I mean when I say the tone of the story does not really suggest, the tone of this chapter doesn't really suggest that either the hobbits or the narrator is really in the grip of, you know, uh, uh, sort of an, uh, an, an anxious, you know, white knuckled narrative yet at this point. Um, and, uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, and it's, as as far as jokes go, it's a little bit, I mean, mean-spirited. I mean, it's, as they rebuke him for, after, what did you want to play that silly trick for? What Frodo goes on to emphasize is, like, he, he had done you a good turn, right? So Frodo seems to suggest that that was a mean-spirited thing to do. That You know, it's, he shouldn't have done that to Farmer Maggot, right? It was mean to do to Farmer Maggot, you know, to make Farmer Maggot think he's going crazy. And, and not only that, but, you know, potentially uh, jeopardize Farmer Maggot's friendship with Odo and Frodo, uh, right? Because, you know, they appear to be complicit with whatever happened and everything. So it's, um, you know, anyway, it does, uh, yeah, Lee, it does also reduce sort of Farmer Maggot's character. Lee says that, uh, um, you know, he it sort of makes him into a mere rube as compared to the, you know, the quiet and slow but deep character in the final Lord of the Rings. Um, yes, yes. Now, you're right, Hugo, that hobbits are known to talk lightly even in the worst of situations. Again, I'm not... My point isn't that it's this chapter is unhobbitly, right? Much to the contrary, right? It's a very hobbitish chapter. But what I am saying is that it's... Uh, uh, Not only the experience of the hobbits, but the experience of the readers is um, I don't know, distractible, right? Um, certainly not panicking about the Black Riders, no question. Um, yeah, as Carson says, the, the hobbitry distracts from the plot, you know, rather than kind of entwining with the plot. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly the, the uh, distraction. The 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 beer prank, right? Again, that seems to me a complete... It has... Um, yeah, it doesn't really... It's kind of funny, but it's... Uh, um, it's It doesn't really further the story at all. Oh, Karina, thanks for bringing that up. Yeah, I also... I love the fact that Farmer Maggot... Um, and Lee, this kind of goes with what you're saying, right? Farmer Maggot, instead of being a farmer with famously ferocious dogs named Grip, Fang, and Wolf, 
right, is a farmer with one little dog whose name is Gip, <laughs> right, which seems like like a name which is onomatopoetic of the bark of a very small yippy dog, right? Gip, 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 gip. <laughs> and that's, and that's, see, you know, it it's like that says it all right there, right? You know, uh, uh, far, farmer maggot from gip owner to grip fang and wolf owner, right? That's, that's it, right? Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, Kimber says, all Tolkien has at this point is the Hobbit, so he's developing them, but he hasn't found the rest of the story and the rest of the world. Exactly, that's exactly the impression that I have, which is why I find it so interesting that this stuff uh, so clearly follows what we had in the previous chapters, where he does seem to be finding the rest of the story, and if not the rest of the world, at least more of the story, right? Um, but yet that's still kind of... Um, um, that's still, I don't know, submergible, I guess, right? He can still kind of lose sight of it. He, he doesn't, the sort of his, um, his convictions don't seem to be, uh, um, don't seem to be really, uh, Tolkien's convictions about the story, right? Don't seem to be really firm so far. Um, yeah, yeah. Anyway, um, I want to jump ahead a little bit um, and look at the place where he stopped. So Christopher Tolkien makes the argument. This is the end. So all of this stuff is in TypeScript, right? And um, Christopher quotes the letter where Tolkien says that he, he he's not going to have time to write for a while. Christopher says that Tolkien stopped for about six months, right? And he wrote that letter in that time saying that he was kind of stuck and he didn't know where he was going, right? Um, he wasn't quite sure what to do next. Um, here's the end. The end of the TypeScript. So this seems to be the, the last thing that Tolkien wrote before he, he took that break, right? This is the reunion at the house that Marmaduke prepared for them, right? They've just, they've just had their baths. Bingo came out. Locks, said Marmaduke, looking in. The stone floor was all in pools. Frodo was drying in front of the fire. Odo was still wallowing. Come on, Bingo, said Marmaduke. Let's begin supper and leave them. They had supper in the kitchen on a table near the open fire. The others soon arrived. Odo was the last, but he quickly made up for lost time. When they had finished, Marmaduke, when he, when they had finished, Marmaduke pushed back the table and drew chairs round the fire. We'll clear up later, he said. Now tell me about it. Again, does this sound like someone who is interrupted in the middle of writing a story, right? Uh, I mean, it's not, I'm not saying this is a good ending of the story, but it kind of it sounds like an ending, right? Like where he's gotten to the point where they're all safe in this house and they've taken their baths and they've had their dinner and they've reunited with Marmaduke and they've left the Black Rider behind on the, on the landing stage. So they seem to have a little bit of, of, of time and, and uh, you know, space now with the, the, the rider on the other side of the river. Uh, so they settle down to a nice dinner, the two baths and a nice dinner, and now they're going to sit down and talk and tell him the story of what happened. Um, again, it's easy to say this after Tolkien says that he had come to a dead end, but this kind of sounds like a dead end, doesn't it? I mean, there's, there's, when you, you get here and you're like, where, where is this, where is this going exactly, right? Now, remember, the references to going into the old forest come after this. They start almost immediately after this. The plan that Marmaduke suggests of what's going through the old forest 
start in the manuscript that follows the end of this typescript, and uh, and Christopher argues that that's where Tolkien picked up again at the manuscript, right? Um, so uh, <laughs> Nadia is uh, is noticing a, a queer trend in Hobbit culture that they they always. Uh, want to procrastinate doing the dishes. Yeah, Nadia, remember even in uh, the published Fellowship of the Ring, there's still that reference to uh, they left the washing up for Lobelia, right? Yeah, exactly. Procrastinating dish doing is uh, clearly a stable Hobbit trait, uh, which never changes, absolutely. Um, (laughs) John Caldwell suggests that at this point, Tolkien is looking back and realizing it hasn't led anywhere, right? Um, Yeah, yeah. It's uh, this... uh, the what small amount of of sort of forward moment so again we 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 had the the establishment of the concept right ring ring wraiths necromancer um gollum and his background and stuff but it 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 hasn't seemed to immediately translate into you know the impetus of a story um and now what small forward momentum it had that is getting them to marmaduke in buckland has seems to have kind of petered out right and he uh and he pauses. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, exactly, Diego. You'll notice, of course, that there's no conspiracy, right? There's, there's, no, there's no issue there. This, this, is, this is the moment where the conspiracy gets unmasked in the published version, right? But as you can see, even that kind of element of interest um, is, uh, is just not there, right, in the original version. Now, I want to pause also in this place. We'll come back and we'll look at the manuscript stuff uh, in a bit. But I want to pause here to um, uh, look at poetry. There were several poems. And uh, as you probably know, I'm not going to skip the poems, right? So let's look at, uh, let's look at the poems that we get. I really like Odo's original bath poems, right? These are the two, the two snatches of verse we get from Odo about the bath uh, in this first draft. O water warm and water hot, O water boiled in pan and pot, O water blue and water green, O water silver clear and clean, Of bath I sing my song. O praise the steam expectant nose, O bless the tub my weary toes, O happy fingers come and play, O arms and legs you here may stay, And wallow warm and long. Put mire away, forget the clay, Shut out the night, wash off the day, In water lapping chin and knees, In water kind now lie at ease, Until the dinner gong. And then after his bath, or in the bath, he sings, Bless the water, O my feet and toes, Bless it, O my ten fingers, Bless the water, O Odo, And praise the name of Marmaduke. Okay, um... I love this, right? I love these. Now, this style is very different from the bath song that Pippin is ultimately going to get in the published Fellowship of the Ring, right? Um, you may... Re- I didn't quote that whole thing. I don't want to do a... a it's, it's not close enough to do a comparison line by line, so I, I, I didn't put it up on screen. Um, I'll quote a little bit of, you, of it for you just so that you kind of remember the register, right? Remember, it starts, Sing hay for the bath at close of day that washes the weary mud away. A loon is he that will not sing. A water hot is a noble thing. That's the first stanza, right? Um, Notice the difference in register um, of that poem, right? 
so let's look at we have basically three stanzas here right these uh these uh inset lines which are metrically different right they're shorter lines uh mark the 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 sort of breaks right in this first poem um so uh uh notice look at the first stanza notice what's being addressed right again if you think about the published bath song Sing hey for the bath at close of day that washes the weary mud away. A loon is he that will not sing. A water hot is a noble thing. Right? That's a song that's singing about baths. Right? Um, it's, and it's, it starts off by urging the listener to sing. Right? Sing hey for the bath at close of day. It's like it urges you to join with the singing about baths. And then it sings about baths. Right? Um, and talks about how wonderful hot water is. Um, notice what the first stanza of this poem does. A water warm and water hot, a water boiled in pan and pot, a water blue and water green, a water silver clear and clean, of bath I sing my song. What is that? What's he... What's he addressing? What's its register? Very much more formal, very much more stylized, right? Not sing hey for the bath, Right? Oh, water warm. Oh, oh, water, oh, water, oh, water, oh, water, four times in a row. Right? Highly, not just highly structured, but elaborately repetitious. Um, yes. Oh, good. Very good. Um, uh, Tom, of course, is noticing how, uh, notice how Tolkien ties all three stanzas together with terminal rhymes at the end of the short lines, right? Song, long, and gong. Bring things all, bring things all together. Um, uh, yes, and, and and it is a particularly good set, uh, <laughs> Tom, isn't it? Like song and long, you might kind of see coming, but gong, I bet, kind of takes you. I bet you didn't see that one coming, right? Um, yes, good. Um, uh, this is uh, this is more like more like a hymn. Uh, as, uh, as, 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 as Josh says, um, it's technically it's an apostrophe, right? He is addressing the water, right? Oh, water. Um, he is singing to the water and contemplating its, its properties, right? Um, first he's specifying what, what, which water he is, uh, he is singing to, right? What is specifically the object of his reverent song here, right? Uh, uh, water that is both warm and water that is hot. Which kind of hot? Well, what the kind of hot water that's boiled in pan and pot, right? Blue and green, silver clear and clean, and all of those qualify so long as they're warm and, and hot and boiled in pan and pot. Of bath, I sing my song, right? We, we, we get that sort of collectively. This is the specific water. Uh, that I'm singing about. Uh, but now notice the shift in the second stanza. Oh, praise the steam, expectant nose. Oh, bless the tub, my weary toes. Who's he singing to in the second line, in the in the second stanza? He's singing to the water first, at first, right? Yeah, he sings to himself. He sings to, he's, he's addressing his own body. So he's now doing an apostrophe to his own members, right? Oh, praise the steam, expectant nose. He sings to his nose, to his toes, to his fingers and arms and legs, right? 
and and uh, uh, <laughs> okay, sorry, Tom. I didn't see that. Tom had added that not only did he not see Gong coming, <laughs> but he hadn't really wanted to see Gong coming. Um, yeah, so he he addresses his own body parts and urges them right. Uh, and uh, he, you here may stay and wallow warm and long. Now he shifts again in third stanza. Put mire away. Forget the clay. Shut out the night. Wash off the day. Uh, notice now it's it's the the structure has changed, right? The the in that the lines don't don't all start with O, right? Um, these are all imperatives, right? Um, this this string of like things you must do. Put mire away. Now presumably. He's addressing his body parts still? Probably at least that was what he was most recently addressing, right? Or is he perhaps, oh, no, I like this better. Is he addressing both of them, right? First he addressed the water, then he addressed his body parts, and now in the third stanza, he's bringing them both together. Now the two of you, hot water, body parts, right? Now come together and perform these actions, right? Put mire away, forget the clay, uh, in water lapping chin and knees, in water kind, now lie at ease. Um, uh, uh, it's it's wonderful. I just, uh, this is, um, this is great. This is, but, but it's a different style. This is not a, this is not a, a homely poem, right? This is a, um, uh, this poem is, Well, technically, it's a, what is it, a bro-esque, technically? That is, talking about low things in a high style, right? Because um, this is a very high style indeed, right? This is the kind of the, you know, the, all of those O, O, O's things are things you might expect, uh, you know, an epic hero in an epic poem to break out in or something, right? Um, uh and so to be singing them to hot water and to, to, and to your own members uh, is uh, is kind of funny, right? Um, yes, exactly, Josh. You might see an O like that in uh, a hymn to Elbereth, for existence. Yeah, for, for instance, that's a a good uh, a good example. Um, do I think it's? You know, James was just asking. Do I think this style is a conscious echo of the elf song in the last chapter? I don't think so. I mean, I I don't think Odo is deliberately mocking Gildor and the elves. Um, the 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 peril doesn't seem to me close enough. I mean, the elves song isn't like this. This is this would be a huge exaggeration of that kind of element of the of the elf song. So it doesn't seem to me to be close enough to really warrant uh, uh, an accusation of an active. Uh, um, an active uh, 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 mockery or, or parody of that song, but it is certainly taking a a, a a deliberately exaggerated high style to you to 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 discuss a a low thing, and I love that. I mean, I'm just I I'm a huge fan of parody. I'm a huge fan of 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 this kind of burlesque. So I I think it's hilarious. Um, but it's 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 a very different kind, uh, very different kind of poem, very different kind of of, of literary art um, to the bath song, which Pippin is eventually going to get, and he kind of ratchets it up a bit in the sequel. There, bless the water, oh my feet and toes, bless it, oh my ten fingers, bless the water, oh Odo, and praise the name of Marmaduke. Um, 
Oh, who was it? Josh, was it you who earlier on suggested that that latter part... No, it was Lance. Yeah, very good, Lance. You're right. That that the bless the water, oh, my feet and toes lines sounds exactly like a psalm. Exactly like a psalm. That could be a psalm. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, Lance is specifically saying it's, it's like the liturgy of the hours. Um uh, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know. Now, Carrie and Stephen are both suggesting that the kind of, you know, the, the idea of sort of the echoing of the praise of the elves to Elbereth, you know, the, uh, the uh, Odo's echoing of that in his praise of the bath might not be, um, might not be wholly, wholly inappropriate, right? Stephen asks half-jokingly, right, do the hobbits worship baths in the same way that elves uh, worship Elbereth? And Carrie says, uh, you know, the, the hobbits would praise earthly things, right? That's the characterization Tolkien's been developing in the hobbit conversations. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, not for them, the praise of Elbereth, right? Um, uh, yeah, but um, um, uh, but yeah, no, exactly, Josh. You're right that those last lines even have a chiastic structure. I, I, I do think he's imitating a psalm there. Um and which is like a it's a, it's a little bit risque actually you know just a bit um hey, odo's joking right and i love how odo includes himself in the third person bless the water o odo and praise the name of marmaduke um yeah yeah <laughs> nadia you're on fire tonight nadia says instead of sea longing hobbits have bath longing <laughs> right they, they don't they don't have longing for an entire ocean a bathtub is truly enough uh for hobbits um I, I i love it i love that juxtaposition yeah yeah um but uh anyway but you know so but i would also say if they are showing reverence for the bath or, 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 you know, they're, uh, they're longing for these kinds of, these kinds of homely, uh, comforts. Um, they're also, I mean, Odo is clearly making fun of himself all the way through, right? I mean, it's, it's, I, I, I cannot see either one of those poems as a spontaneous utterance, you know, like a spontaneous and sincere heartfelt utterance, right? He's, 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 having fun, uh, uh, at his own expense, clearly. Right. Um, he's, um, uh, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, that, that I think is, 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 is perfectly clear, which again, seems to me very much in character with, uh, um, with, with Hobbit character as we've seen it. Um, okay. Anyway, enough of the bath poems. Let's look at, um, uh, Marmaduke's song that he sings as Bingo, Odo, and Frodo walk by without noticing him on the road. As I was sitting by the way, I saw three hobbits walking. One was dumb with naught to say. The others were not talking. Good night, I said. Good night to you. They heeded not my greeting. One was deaf like the other two. It was a merry meeting. Um, this doesn't this sounds to me like straight out of Lewis Carroll. Doesn't it? Sound, I mean, like that first stanza. One was dumb with naught to say. The others were not talking. Um, and this is classic Hobbit insult humor, Josh. You're absolutely right. Um, 
Uh, and yes, James, this is when they tell him to stop being so Marmadukish. Yes, yes, which is a which is a pretty awesome word. Um, uh, it, it it does remind me of Lewis Carroll. It's um, it's in the same meter as uh, uh, the Walrus and the Carpenter, as I recall. Um, now, as many of you, uh, you know, those of you who have studied. Tolkien's poetry with me, uh, you know, especially those of you who took my Tolkien's poetry class, will recall this is. You know, I say it's in the meter of the wa- the the walrus and the carpenter. It's not like that's unusual. Um, this is what in that class we nicknamed Tolkien meter, um, iambic tetrameter interspersed with lines of iambic trimeter. So you have a basic seven beat couplet, right? As I was walking by the way, I saw three hobbits walking. One was dumb with not to say. The others were not talking. Um, but the whole, but it, but it's Michael. It's 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 not just the rhythm. It is the rhythm, but it's also the tone. It sounds like the Walrus and the Carpenter to me. Um, Tolkien loved the Walrus and the Carpenter. Um, all you need to know about his love for the Walrus and the Carpenter uh, poem is to know is to know that he's um, he translated it into Quenya. So there you are, um, uh, as kind of a translation exercise. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Good. Good. Um, uh, yeah. No, he refers to yeah, Josh. He, he refers to that at some point that that he uh, I'm, I'm trying to remember where it was. It's in one of the it's mentioned in one of the commentaries. I'm pretty sure we came across that in the uh, uh, in one of the History of Middle Earth volumes we did earlier on, I think. I'm pretty sure. Unless I'm going completely crazy, but I'm pretty sure he did a full translation of the Walrus and the Carpenter. Uh, yeah, yeah, I, I I've never seen it, Josh. I haven't seen it, but I'm pre- I'm pretty sure. I, I I'm the I I know I didn't make that up. Christopher mentioned it. I think it's Quenya that he translated it into. Um, he might have translated it into Anglo-Saxon, but I don't think so. I think it was I think it was I think it was an, an Elvish language, and I believe Quenya. Um, and I have no idea what the Quenya word for walrus is, Stephen. No clue. No clue. Um, but it suggests that there is an extant Quenya word for walrus, which seems like an important thing to know. Um, anyway, okay, so... Um, yeah, good, good. Um I don't have too much to say about this poem, um, apart from the fact that it is so very much of a piece with the overall lighthearted tone of this chapter, right? I mean, uh, this poem, this is the perfect, this this poem is pure hobbitry, right? Pure hobbitry. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, Josh, you found it. It's in Parma El Delambaron 20. Oh, well, there you go. See, I didn't make it up. I'm glad I didn't make it up. Uh, I was said uh, you're 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 uh, uh, you're you're making me worried there for a second, Josh. Um, uh, <laughs> no, Tom, I don't think the Quenya word for walrus is uh, goo Um but uh, anyway, yeah. So um, Parma Eldalambaron 20. So there you go. It's out of print, but I'm sure we can dig up a copy. Um, 
Uh, all you have to do, Josh, ask Andy Higgins. He'll 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 send you a copy of the Walrus and the Carpenter in Quenya. Um, uh, just tweet him, and he'll <laughs> he'll he'll send it to you. Uh, I'm sure that could be arranged. Um, anyway, okay, all right. Um, let's look at the next poem. So this is. Um, in the Old Forest, Marmaduke sings the song. Um, this is the song which Frodo sings uh, in the published Fellowship of the Ring. You remember that um, uh, uh, Frodo sings the song. Um, o wanderers in the shadowed land, despair not, for though dark they stand, all woods that be must end at last and see the open stars go past, see the open sky go past. Um, so that's the poem in the published Fellowship of the Ring. Right here is Marmaduke gets it, gets the song uh, in the, in the draft. Christopher says, "My father first wrote, O wanderers in the land of trees, despair not, for there is no wood.' But this was broken off, and the following suggested: Think not of hearth that lies behind, but set your hearts on distant hills beyond the rising of the sun. The journey is but new begun. The road goes ever on before, past many a house and many a door, over water and under wood. And this I find really interesting. Okay, um, so notice that. I didn't know Arthur. I, I, I was thinking the same thing. Arthur says, if they're in a land of trees, how is there no wood? Right? I see suggesting these are artificial trees. I agree that where Tolkien cut that off, those first two lines, is really funny out of context. Right? Despair not, for there is no wood. Right? Yeah, it's, it's fine. Right? The trees are just an illusion, maybe. Or maybe they're all made out of plastic, so you've got nothing to worry about. Uh, exactly, Josh. Yeah, they're N-I-C-E trees. Uh, uh, sorry, I cross-reference with that hideous strength. Anyway, um, uh, <laughs> but that wouldn't be reason not to despair, Josh, so it can't be that. Um, uh, anyway, okay. Uh, we don't know where he was going. Presumably, for there is no wood that something or other, right? We, we, we don't know exactly how he was. He's obviously not finished his sentence there. Um, but my what interests me is the complete shift, right? Um, he he starts the his the first impulse is that Mer, is that I almost called him Mariotic that Marmaduke, excuse me, uh, sings a song addressed to them in their current situation. O wanderers in the land of trees, despair not. Right? Because that's that's where they are and that's what they're doing, right? They're wandering in the land of trees and they're despairing, right? So he's addressing them and trying to encourage them. Uh, I, I, again, we don't know uh, uh, what reason they have not to despair, uh, but, 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 but presumably, there, but it, it was going to go somewhere in that direction. But we don't get that, right? Instead, um, I what we get is think not of hearth that lies behind. So he, he decides, he says, let's go in a completely different direction, right? And notice, what's the direction that he goes? What do you notice there? In the poem that replaces that sort of abortive beginning, right? What's that poem about? Where have we seen this? What direction is he going here? What does this sound like? Yeah, 
Josh, exactly. This sounds just like the road goes ever on and on. Good. Diego was thinking the same thing, right? Um, it's a little bit more active than that other, than the road goes ever on and on poem, right? You know, um, that, what I mean by that is the road goes ever on and on is about the road, right? Um, the road goes ever on and on down from the door where it began. Now far ahead, the road has gone and I must follow if I can pursuing it with eager feet until I find some larger way. Right. Um, this is in the imperative mood. Think not of hearth that lies behind. Right. It's not just about uh, this is what roads do. And this is what I do in following in, in you know, in following the road. Right. It starts off in the imperative, and that's what I mean. That's, I think, what I was referring to when I said it was more active. Think not of hearth that lies behind. It's an exhortation, right? Don't think about your hearth. Don't think about the kettle just beginning to sing, whatever you do, right? Think not of hearth that lies behind, but set your hearts on distant hills beyond the rising of the sun, right? Don't think about what's behind. Don't miss your home. Think about the destination. Think about adventure, right? far away. The journey is but new begun. The road goes ever on before, past many a house and many a door, over water and under wood. Now the observation about the road going ever on before is given as 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 like an encouragement, right? The journey is but new begun. The road goes ever, ever, goes ever on. Set your heart on distant hills, right? Hey, look at the bright side. The road goes ever on and there's a lot left to discover. Think about that. Don't think about the kettle just beginning to sing. Right. Um, so he turns from I'm going to I'm going to do a poem addressed to people who are going through a dark wood and being tempted to despair. He goes from that to I'm going to do a another version of the road goes ever on poem. Right. I'm going to do a kind of a riff on that other on that other poem. Which, of course, we see Tolkien doing a lot in the Lord of the Rings. Right. We see we get three versions of the road goes ever on and on in um in the Lord of the Rings, right? Um so he is gonna keep coming back to that thing and we see we see that impulse here, right? Not immediately. It's not his first impulse, it's his second impulse, right? Um his third impulse apparently, or at least his last impulse, is to go back to the first version, right? Frodo's song in the published Fellowship of the Ring goes back to the first concept. And he's singing to, you know, O wanderers in the shadowed land, despair not, for though dark they stand, all woods that be must end at last. Right? Um, it's about wanderers in the wood. Hey, don't worry about it. The woods are going to perish and uh, and pass away. You know, they're, they're going to end and fail. And, and uh, you know, so don't be intimidated. Right? Um, leading to that awesome line. Uh, that Mary says they don't like all that about ending and failing. I used to tease my students about that. I used to quote that line out of context. They don't like all that about ending and failing. I used to, I used to quote that at the end of the semester all the time. Um, but um, yeah, yeah. Oh, good. Yeah, Diego. Yeah, Diego likes how uh, hearth and heart uh, are in the same place in the line. Right? How those there's a. Diego, I don't even know what to call it. It's not exactly a rhyme, right? It's like a visual rhyme, right? You, you know, the the sort of the echo from one line to the next. Um, yeah, I like that. It's interesting. Um, what, what I find particularly interesting, um, Josh, is it's not only assonance, but it seems to be, it seems to be perhaps even a visual rather than a, 
an auditory effect. I don't know, maybe not. I mean, all most of his poems are are auditory effects, but um, uh, anyway, okay. So, so like I said, I find this interesting, but and I find this impulse interesting in context here, right? He's now returned to the story and he's gotten it moving again, right? Now he sees a direction because we're going to do the old forest. We're going to do Tom Bombadil. We're going to do the Barrow Downs, right? He's off and running now with his story uh, and uh, and has said now in another letter, as Christopher tells us, that he's uh, um, he's he's got his momentum back, right? And things are things are things are tripping along now uh, in writing the Lord of the Rings. And it's interesting to me that when he's doing when he's there, he begins to do this echo of the of the road goes ever on and on, um, which is cool. I think that's, that's pretty, uh, that's pretty neat. Okay. Let's now go back to this second, this next, uh, this next stage, right? When after his break, when he comes back to the story and he has this new direction for it, um, we're going to, we're going to head off to the old forest. So let's look at that. Let's actually pause for a second before I read this. Um, Christopher points out, but he kind of makes light of it. Um, and I don't want to pass it over as easily as, as Christopher does. Tolkien sounds like he's stuck, right, when they get to Crick Hollow. And uh, though it's not called Crick Hollow yet, is it? But anyway, it's the, the place that we will inescapably think of as Crick Hollow when they get there. Um, but anyhow, um, when they get there, um, he gets stuck. And says, I really have no ideas where to go. Right? He says that in his letter. Christopher says, in his commentary on that, right? He says, it's a, it's a little puzzling that he would say that because he clearly did have ideas, as we could see from the, from the notes, you know, the projections, the plot projections that we, were talked, we talked about earlier on. And indeed, not only does he have some ideas, but the idea that he comes back to and actually does have about the old forest and Tom Bombadil and the Barrow Whites is one of the things that was in the projections way back when. You remember that. Remember, his first idea was the witch house, right? And then he ditches the witch house and decides to do Tom Bombadil and Old Man Willow and the Barrow Whites instead, right? Or at least thought maybe he would do that, right? So, um, again, Christopher just kind of is like, hmm, it's a little weird that he would say he had no idea when he did seem to have some idea. I want to kind of pause on that for a second because that to me is really interesting. It suggests either A, that plot outline was not from that time, right? And of course, you know, goodness knows I'm not suggesting a criticism of Christopher and saying like, oh, maybe he got his times wrong. I mean, this, the work that he's done in sorting out all of these notes, um, I can't even imagine doing this. And and it's likely that some of the, as he says, it's likely that some of the conclusions he's drawn about chronology and sequence are are incorrect. Um, But goodness, again, I'm not trying to nitpick the work that he's done there. It's phenomenal. However, um, uh, that would be one explanation for why he would say that. But I have another explanation. Uh, and I'm sorry, I probably should have quoted this, uh, this letter at greater length, but, uh, or at any length, I didn't put it on a slide. Um, but uh, here's my other theory about that. My other theory is Tolkien's not being 100% sincere when he says that in that letter, because that letter is the same letter that he goes, he segues from that, from like, I don't know, I'm really stuck. It's the, it's the letter when she says, like, I, th- I think, you know, I used up all of the motifs and stuff that I would want, you know, in the original Hobbit, which wasn't really intended to have a sequel. Does anybody remember 
Does anybody remember where he goes from there in that letter? After he says, gosh, I'm really stuck. I mean, I've, I've taken it up a few chapters, but I just, I don't really, I don't, I don't have any more material. And uh, I used everything up in The Hobbit and I don't know where to go from here. And I didn't really mean it to have a, uh, to, exactly, Carson. His next move is, and he's writing to a guy at the publishing company, right? His next move is, I, yeah, my, my problem is I'm just, I keep thinking about the Silmarillion, you know, and I, I, my mind is really occupied with the Silmarillion. And he's like, you know, if only, um, if only, I think if I could just publish the Silmarillion it would really kind of get it out, and it would it would be it would be kind of a, a cleansing experience, and I, I'm sure I could get on with the sequel there. I honestly take that. I I I, I believe that this is actually um, this is actually Tolkien. This is very gentle pressure that he's applying. Right? I mean, he's not coming out and saying uh, like holding the sequel hostage, but he is using their desire for a sequel as leverage. He wants to get the Silmarillion published. They don't want to publish the Silmarillion. They've already rejected it twice now. Um, so uh, they don't want to do it. He wants to get it published. He knows they want a sequel. So, I mean, honestly, that letter sounds to me like what he's actually saying is, I could write your sequel. Maybe maybe I'll write your sequel if you publish that Silmarillion, right? Let's, uh, let's have a little talk about this. Um, I, I mean, I, that's so. I'm not inclined to take him 100 percent at his word. You know, when he describes the difficulty he's having with the process of writing the sequel at that point, you know, I, I'm sure there's an element of truth in it. I, you know, I doubt he's just completely fabricating it. But it sounds like he's playing it up, right? And it sounds like he's playing it up for a very particular reason. Um, so again, as I say, Christopher kind of didn't make much of it. I'd kind of make a little bit more of it, actually, myself. But in any case, one way or another, he does take a break. Um, he does seem to be kind of petering out. He does take a break. And now he's back into things and he's returning. And what does he do? He returns to one of the ideas that he seems already to have had. So, in fact, he wasn't actually out of ideas. But uh, but anyway, so he goes back to his idea and decides to give it a whirl. Um... Are the stories about it true? said Odo. I don't know what stories you mean. If you mean the old bogey stories our nurses used to tell us about goblins and wolves and things of that sort, no. But it is queer. Everything in the old forest is very much more alive, more aware of what is going on than in the Shire. And they don't like strangers. The trees watch you, but they don't do much in daylight. Occasionally, the most malicious ones may drop a branch or stick a root out or grasp at you with long trailers. But at night, things can get most disturbing, I am told. I have only once been in the old forest, and then only near the edge, after dark. I thought the trees were all whispering to each other, although there was no wind, and the branches waved about and groped. They do say the trees actually move and can surround strangers and hem them in. They used, they used long ago to attack the hedge, come and plant themselves right by it and lean over it. But we burnt the ground all along, all along the east side for miles, and they gave it up. There are also queer things living deep in the forest and on the far side, but I have not heard that they are very fierce, at least not in daytime. But something makes paths and keeps them open. There is the beginning of a great and broad one that goes more or less in our direction. That is the one I am making for. Okay, now, of course, as you'll recognize, a lot of this makes it into the published text. Um, but, um, 
Uh, yeah, Stephen, of course, it's our nurses instead of the nurses of one particular hobbit, because the one particular hobbit in question is Fatty Bulger, who isn't there yet, right? So um, so not having the conspiracy or Fatty Bulger, um, we... Um, um, we uh, uh, there, it's there, he's taking... Uh, 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 Marmaduke is taking credit for all of their, you know, it's it's all of their nurses who get credit for this. Um, anyway, okay, so again, going back to that letter, having just said it sounds like he's playing it up and not being entirely sincere, I can also go through and give evidence to support all the things that he says in that letter, right? We can see that his story seems to have kind of petered out. We can also see the danger that he points to in that letter about, um, uh, just falling into repetition, right? Having used up all the things that he likes in The Hobbit and that he doesn't have anything new but is afraid he's just going to keep like retreading the same ground that he went over in The Hobbit. We can see the very real risk of that, right? Bingo sets out. He's going on an adventure, right? He ha- throws the party and he leaves at the end of the, fr- you know, the fourth draft of chapter four. Where's he going? What's he doing? Uh, Rivendell! Who knows, right? We have no idea where we're going, so let's just go to Rivendell. Um, that, that, um, well, right, because Bilbo did, right? So that's, um, um, that's, uh, d- 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 retreading similar ground, right? Um, he needs an obstacle. They need to, they, they need to, they need to pass through dangerous terrain. So what do we have? A dark and spooky wood, right? Like, like Mirkwood. I called it Mirkwood Light, because uh, of course it's not dark like Mirkwood, um, but again, I don't, I don't, I'm not trying to accuse him of actually merely retreading stuff, right? There's a lot of differences here. But again, you can see when he is trying to make his point about publishing the Silmarillion, he's not making stuff up out of nowhere, right? That impulse of like just kind of redoing a bunch of things that are like, you know, following the model of The Hobbit and doing things like The Hobbit, it seems to be a real danger. But at the same time, we can see how he's also avoiding that danger, right? The Old Forest is, after all, quite different from Mirkwood, not only in the fact that there's more light there, but that the dangers themselves are different. What's the danger of Mirkwood, right? <laughs> what are the three dangers of the fire swamp? No, what are the, what's the primary risk of Mirkwood? Yeah, leaving the path. Josh, that's the main thing, right? And Nancy, yeah, the spiders, right? We've got other things, spiders and the black river. But the main thing about Mirkwood, stay on the path, right? There's this, there's, there's a safe path through it, but if you get off it, you'll definitely, you'll definitely be lost, right? So getting lost, starving to death, getting eaten by something else, those are the, those are the primary dangers of Mirkwood. In the old forest, the situation is different, and indeed, in a way, more dire. Mirkwood is larger. Right, so the odds of starving to death before you come to the other side, which is of course the situation where the that the dwarves and uh, uh, Bilbo sort of fi- find themselves, um, uh, is uh, um, is, it, it, is is not doesn't seem to be the issue, right, in the old forest. Um, but instead, this is a forest which will actively entrap the trees themselves will act to entrap you. The trees themselves didn't do anything bad in Mirkwood. Right, um, the trees were like the one thing in Mirkwood you don't have to be afraid of. In fact, right, you can climb them and everything. And I guess the little black, uh, you know, the black monarch butterflies are okay. Um, but um, uh, 
but anyway, yeah. So, but Josh, exactly. We have the reference to the path, right? There's a beginning of a great something makes paths, right? There's a beginning of a great broad path that goes more or less in our direction. That's the path that I'm making for. And again, it's it, that seems almost an active appeal to the whole Merkwood situation, right? Don't leave the path, right? Except, of course, in Merk in the old forest, paths are a trap. Right, paths are probably made by the trees themselves, and only in order to lure you uh, uh, into your own to your own destruction. Right, um, so it's very far from he's just doing the same thing a second time. Um, I, but again, we can see a similar kind of framework, but very different, very different details. Yes, you're right, Stephen. One of the three dangers. Uh, of the old forest would be uh, would be M O U J's yes uh, Meyer of unusual jolliness, um, I don't think they exist, Stephen. Uh, anyway, <laughs> moving on. Um, were you surprised at the revelation about Farmer Maggot? I know I always find that surprising. The, this is in the notes uh, to himself, right? He turns out to know Farmer Maggot. Make Maggot not a hobbit but some other kind of creature. Not a dwarf, but akin to Tom Bombadil. Okay, so... (laughs) Right, Josh Ramsey says, Farmer Maggot is God! Yes, he's true. Exactly. He's a Luvatar in disguise. Oh, I bet you're going to be regretting that beer prank now, bingo. Oh, boy. Yeah. No, that's awesome. Um, That's awesome. I... um, yeah, okay, so, um, so yeah, so he's going to now retroactively make Farmer Maggot not a hobbit. So, so we can see way, you know, right, right away from the beginning, the, the, as soon as he begins to integrate, uh, Tom Bombadil into the story, um, we have this impulse, this impulse of connecting him to Farmer Maggot and retroactively sort of increasing the, the profile, right, of Farmer Maggot. Um, uh, and of course, in this case, in this sort of alarming way, right, what he's thinking of doing to farmer, make farmer maggot, not actually a hobbit at all. But, but to me, the impulse in relationship to Tom Bombadil is what's really interesting there, right? Um, he wants to establish a, we see this, this, this need to establish a connection, right? Not have Tom Bombadil a completely, um, sort of free radical, right, floating around the old forest, um, to have him have some connection with the society and even with Hobbit society, right, which is Farmer Maggot. Now, again, Farmer Maggot, so not exactly, an indirect connection to, to Hobbit society, right, because Farmer Maggot has connections to, to, uh, to Hobbit society, but presumably, presumably under, uh, uh, under false pretenses, right? Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Matt Shaw points out that Maggot has purple boots, you know, so uh, uh, it's much harder to rhyme with. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Anyway, okay. So, okay. Um, but let's get back to Tom Bombadil. Tom Bombadil is an aborigine. He knew the land before men, before hobbits, before barrel whites. Yes, before the necromancer, before the elves came to this quarter of the world. Goldberry says he is master of water, wood, and hill. Does all this land belong to him? 
No, the land and the things belong to themselves. He is not the possessor, but the master, because he belongs to himself. Now, notice, this is, um, this is Tolkien writing notes to himself. Notice the trend here. We, we, we can learn, looking at the notes and sketches that Tolkien wrote that Christopher transcribes for us word for word, or as many words as he can make out, um, really shows us a lot about how Tolkien thought. I, I love this element of the thing, right? Um, notice the flow of this. Um, he starts off with a statement, right? Just a, an idea. Tom Bombadil is an aborigine, right? Um, and then before he finishes the sentence, with a dash, he knew the land before men, before hobbits, before Barrow Whites. Yes, before the necromancer. Notice that yes? Hear that? He's already thinking in dialogue, right? He started off with just a, 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 a sentence to himself, and then he immediately transitions into now he's hearing it in somebody else's voice. This is now clearly somebody, somebody saying this, right? Even though he's still speaking in the third person, maybe it's Goldberry speaking, but maybe this is Tom speaking, and Tolkien is still speaking in the third person, but it's already beginning to become speech, right? Yes, before the necromancer. Before the elves came to this quarter of the world. Dialogue. Again, this quarter. Not that quarter, right? This quarter of the world. Goldberry says he is master of wood and hill. Does all this land belong to him? No. The land and the things belong to themselves. He's now full dialogue form, right? Um, The conversation now is beginning to kind of flow as he's thinking about this. This is, again, as we've seen before, uh, this is... um, this seems to be always the way that his mind goes. Um, but uh, anyway, okay, so he... Uh, um, this is... So, Tom Bombadil, yes, before the necromancer, before the elves come to this quarter of the world. By the way, you see what other conclusion we can draw from yes, before the necromancer, right? That he was imagining they're going to be talking about the necromancer, right? So he's definitely not left behind the whole necromancer angle, you know, the necromancer and ring angle of the uh, uh, of the of the story um, and yes Brandon it is interesting that he places him before elves right I mean the elves are before almost everything so if if it's before the elves came to this quarter of the world it's very clear that you know Tom Bombadil is not one of the children of Iluvatar right whatever else he may be um, but uh, um yeah, John, it is really interesting. John Caldwell says, I like the difference he, dra- the difference he draws between domination and st- uh, stewardship, you know, with the possessor or master distinction, right? Um, yeah, exactly. And I, it's not exactly stewardship, but yeah, the, 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 the distinction which would seem like a subtle one, right, between being the possessor of something and being the master of something, right? He doesn't shy away from the master thing, right? Tom has authority, Tom has command, um, so he has, in a sense, dominion, right? But not possession. Um, And why? Because he belongs to himself, right? It's because of his nature, because of his relationship with himself, that he can be the master, but not the possessor of the land. Um, Okay. It's on the subject, uh, remember this business about it before men, before hobbits, before Barrow Whites, before the necromancer, before elves came to the court of the world. Remember that. I'm going to come back to that. This is um, um, when when I'm going to say my controversial thing. Um, But first, Barrow Whites. 
Master, he said, we cannot thank you for your kindness, for it has been beyond thanks. But we must go, against our wish and quickly, for I heard horsemen in the night, and fear we are pursued. Tom looked at him. Horsemen, he said. Dead men riding the wind? Tis long since they came hence. What ails the Barrowites to leave their old mounds? You are strange folk to come out of the Shire, even stranger than my news told me. Now you had best tell me all, and I will give you counsel. Uh, what? Yeah, so apparently the Black Riders are Barrowites. Uh, really? <laughs> At first, this might sound like a departure from what we saw last time, right? Because he worked out the whole ring wraith thing, right? How you, like, they're ones who have passed through the ring, presumably not physically, but spiritually through the ring, right? They're, they've passed through the ring, and so therefore they've become white, they become wraiths. Um, and now this seems to be, um, this seems to be uh, a change. No, they're Barrowites. They're Barrowites. Yeah. Barrowites. Um, this makes sense. There is a link that makes all of this make sense. In fact, I love the link that makes all of this make sense. There is a single word that makes this whole thing come together. A single word which can tie the ringwraiths and the barrow whites together into a perfectly harmonious whole. And that word, I would argue, is necromancer. He is still called the necromancer. Tolkien's referring to, as we saw in the previous dialogue, or quasi-dialogue, right? He's called the Necromancer. The Ringwraiths are creatures under his control, right? Under his, uh, uh, absolutely under his power. At least some of them are absolutely under his power. Um, the Barrowites are spirits of the dead, right? So, yeah, of course. Necromancer, right? Barrowites are necromantic things. That makes sense, right? You're a necromancer? There are Barrowites? Of course, if there are Barrowites, they've got to be real connected to the necromancer, right? I mean, no-brainer, right? And the Ringwraiths are connected to the necromancer. We've already established that. So, QED, right? No problems. Um, yeah, I mean, Josh, it's kind of amazing, right? We would act, It looks like we were actually going to get some legitimate necromancy going on, right? Um, yeah. Yeah. Yana um, <laughs> says, it's funny because in this way the Barrowites actually make much more sense than they make in the published version. I completely agree. The idea that the Barrowites and the Ringwraiths are the same is, uh, uh, makes, yeah, it works. It kind of does work, really. Um, so, Interesting, interesting. Um, I, when um, it's funny reading through, I, I realized you know, of course, the first reference that seems to connect the two of them is uh, in the. You remember in the very first version, they don't meet Tom first. They get to the Barrow Downs and are captured. 
um, by the or are like being chased by the by the whites, and that's when they meet Tom. And Tom, you know, Tom comes up and uh, or rather, Tom comes back at that point, and he 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 you know, holds up his hand and he tells the Barrowites and the Barrow, because the Barrowites are coming galloping after them, right? He rescues them and he's bringing them home and the, 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 it says the Barrowites come galloping. Christopher Tolkien was not 100% sure about the word galloping, but he thinks it's the word galloping. They come galloping after them. And when I, f- when, when I first read that, I always think it's a, it's a, like a metaphor, right? Like they're just like shambling really fast, right? I'm imagining them as being like, uh, fast-moving zombies kind of shuffling and galloping over towards them, and Tom Bombadil raises his hand and they stop and they go away, right? Um, but no, it seems that he means they're actually on horses, galloping, because they're black riders, right? Um, okay, okay. Um, yeah, Josh is wondering if their horses are dead horses. Who knows if their horses are if their horses are real horses. We don't really have much evidence about that yet. Um, but, um, okay, so that's kind of alarming. Tom Bombadil is wondering what ails the Barrow Whites to leave their old mounds. So, okay, so if the Barrow Whites are ringwraiths, uh, the Barrow Whites have been in the mounds, right? So the normally they stay there, but now they've come out. So this shows us that of course, the necromancer, he, like, I guess, what, like, he parks them there? So you've got the, the ring wraiths, um, you know, these, these spirits that are made by the ring, um, and he normally, like, their home base is the, the Barrow Downs, right? So that's, so they, they, they're, they, they get kind of, as I said, they're sort of parked there. But now he's, 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 he's pulling them out, right? So now he, he's bringing out the, the he's deploying uh, the Barrow White slash Black Riders from the Barrow Downs, um, and Tom is like, whoa, they're out? Right. Who let the whites out? Um, so, anyway, it's that's interesting. No, John, it's not quite like the Nazgul tombs from the Hobbit movies, but uh, but anyway, yeah, it's it's um, um, it's interesting, right? It's interesting. And notice another thing that I can't help but think. I can't help but think this makes the whole story seem more local then it will later come to be, right? I mean, if the Barrow Downs, these Barrow Downs, on the other side of the old forest from Buckland, right, the Barrow Downs which lie between the Shire and Bree, if that's the spot where the necromancer parks his whites, right, uh, you know, parks his, uh, his wraiths, then um, it kind of makes the whole, like, necromancer ring wraith thing makes it kind of a kind of a, um, you know, neighborhood affair, right? Um, the world just seems kind of smaller still, if you know what I mean by that. Um, <laughs> Carson says, who let the whites out should have been the title of this, of this class. Carson, you're right. If I had thought about that into, I, I did, I didn't think of that when I was making my slides, or I totally would have done that. Uh, I also am lamenting that I did not make Who Let the Whites Out the title of this uh, of this episode. Um. <laughs> yes, Arthur says, Who Let the Whites Out? Sniff. 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 Yeah. Something like that. Exactly. Um. Yeah. Anyway, okay. Okay. Um, so, this is this is this is fascinating. And where do whites come from? Where does old man Willow come from? 
Ah, ha. <clears throat> Amongst his talk, there was here and there much said of old man Willow, and Mary, who's Mary, right? Farewell, Marmaduke. Oh, we'll miss you, Marmaduke. Uh, and Mary learned enough to content him, more than enough, for it was not comfortable lore, though not enough for him to understand how that gray, thirsty, earthbound spirit had become imprisoned in the greatest willow of the forest. The tree did not die, though its heart went rotten, while the malice of the old man drew power out of earth and water, and spread like a net, like fine root threads in the ground, and invisible twig fingers in the air, till it had infected or subjugated nearly all the trees on both sides of the valley. Wow. That's different, right? Um, I, um, I... This is one of those passages, and there are a bunch of these in The Return of the Shadow, um, where I'm reading along, right, and I am uh, I'm in the comfortable, I'm sort of buoyed up by the comfortable sense of familiarity, right, um, because it's, it's, it's almost line for line the same as the published edition. It's, it's not quite word for word, but... You know, that, like, for it's not comfortable lore, uh, you know, it learned more than enough to content him, for it is not comfortable lore, and all that stuff. And then at the end, too, right, um, like, fine root threads in the ground and invisible twig fingers in the air. Uh, but in the middle of this, right, in the midst, you know, so I'm all, I'm all lulled into complacency by the comfortable familiarity of this, and then all of a sudden I get smacked between the eyes by something that's shockingly different, right? gray, thirsty, earthbound spirit that had become imprisoned in the greatest willow of the forest? Um. Wow. Wow. That's, um... Different. Very different. Um, who was the spirit? Earthbound spirit? Like the Balrogs? That is... Does that mean it was had been bound within the earth? Or is it bound within the willow? And so is earth bound in that sense? Like it's been imprisoned in the wheelchair where said he says it's imprisoned, right? So is it is it bound in that sense? Bound to earth like the planet Earth, right? I don't even really know. Um but um but yeah, Stephen, it does sound similar to White's, right? But who who put it there? Who, who imprisoned it? What is it? Where did it come from? Uh, uh, and, and, you know, whoever imprisoned it in the willow tree was obviously not doing anybody else any favors, right? Because, I mean, it's being, oh, sure, yeah, it's imprisoned in the tree, but it's not like it can't do any harm, right? So here it is, infecting, infecting, that's the word, and subjugating, right? All the trees, all the, the poor trees, are all now being subjugated and oppressed and infected by the evil that is now emanating from this creature, this gray, thirsty spirit uh, that's imprisoned within the willow tree. So it still obviously has its power and ability to influence things around it. And it really leads you to wonder, like, what on earth happens to the things that it eats, right? The hobbits are being drawn into the trunk and consumed by the willow. What's it meaning to do with them in there? Um... No idea. No idea. Um, 
so this is an alarming concept, right? Um, more about the Barrowites, too. Bombadil's talk about the Barrowites of the Barrow Downs remained almost word for word into the Fellowship of the Ring. This is Christopher talking, of course, with one difference. For Fellowship of the Ring, a shadow came out of dark places far away. This text has a dark shadow came up out of the middle of the world. In the underlying penciled text can be read, a dark shadow came up out of the south. So we're not quite sure what direction the dark shadow came from, but that idea of the dark shadow coming up out of the earth, right? Um, remember, you know, deep, deep, you know, the world is gnawed by nameless things. Even Sauron knows them not. They are older than he. Well, like, whatever the dark shadow that came up from the earth, the gray, thirsty, earthbound spirit uh, imprisoned in the willow, we get these glimpses of that kind of thing. Right, this uh, sort of ancient evil that's lurking around that people are still just kind of encountering. Right, the Balrog being the most sensational example, but only one of many examples. Right, and uh, now the the Willow Tree, the Willow Tree, Old Man Willow is much more mysterious, I think, in the published text. That is, it's much more mysterious that like because he seems to be just a Willow Tree, like he, he he's not a spirit imprisoned in a Willow Tree. He's just a willow tree that went bad, right? And is uh, a mighty singer. Like, I guess, lots of willow trees could be singers of varying degrees of mightiness, right? But he's just a particularly mighty singer, but he, he his heart is rotten, though his strength is green. Um, he may be becoming entish, right? Um, but uh, but he's... he's um, his wood is sound as a bell, but bad right through, as uh, as Treebeard would say. Um, yeah, James, he's like the evil tree. Exactly, this is what I was just quoting, James, like the evil trees that Treebeard talks about. Yeah, exactly. So he seemed to be just a, a really bad uh, horn, basically. Um, very, very, very powerful horn. Um, yeah, Mick says, it makes more sense that Tom Bombadil is stationed near this dangerous spirit. Yeah, Mick. Did Tom Bombadil imprison that spirit there? Do we have the faintest hint of a backstory of Tom Bombadil? No way. In the ancient days of the world, Tom Bombadil fought with a spirit, a gray, thirsty, evil spirit, which desired to infect and subjugate others, and he imprisoned it. And he imprisoned it within the greatest willow of the forest, and thereafter set himself for the rest of time to remain in that forest standing guard over the gray, thirsty spirit which he had imprisoned. That, um, that kind of works. It kind of works, doesn't it? Now, is that what Tolkien had in mind? Ah, uh, no clue. I mean, there's no more evidence than what we see here, right? But, um... I don't know. I like it. I like it. Um... Yeah. Yeah. It also explains why um, many people ask. You know, it's a question I get a lot. Like, why does Tom Bombadil let the Barrow Whites and the and the uh, the Willow stick around? Why does he Why does he Why does he not destroy Old Man Willow? Right. Well, here's your answer. Right. He is. He's the jailer of Old Man Willow. He can't destroy him. Right. Um, and he's already imprisoned him. 
And that's why he's keeping him there. I love it. I love it. Oh, cool. James Stevens is saying, hey, it could involve the lady that wore the brooch. You never know. You never know. Um, um, yeah, yeah. Um, now, Nancy is trying to burst my bubble and saying that she doesn't suppose Tom Bombadil would stay somewhere to be, like, all responsible. And, and uh, you know, it's hard to see Tom Bombadil as, like, I shall stand here cease, in ceaseless vigilance for, until the end of time. It doesn't really sound like uh, like Tom Bombadil, right? But, but Nancy, maybe it's a front. Totally a front. That's what I'm thinking. Yeah. Um, yeah, Josiah says this is starting to sound like the rift in Lotro. It totally is, Josiah. You're absolutely correct. Um, anyway, anyway, okay, all right. En- enough wild speculation. But hey, it that it, this that's that's interesting, right? The imprisoned thing is there's a story there, right? Okay. Anyway, let's um, let's go back. My last. I'm, I'm going to end with my con- with my controversial thing. <clears throat> and then, uh, and then we'll be done for ne- before next week. Okay. More on the Aborigine stuff. Here we see Tolkien putting that Aborigine stuff into actual dialogue. Eh? What? Said Tom, sitting up, and his eyes glinted in the gloom. I smiled when I got there. His eyes glinted in the gloom. Uh, this came up in The Hobbit. I talked about it a little bit in my Hobbit book. Um... Uh, Tolkien loves to alliterate with the word gloom. Uh, gleam in the gloom or glint in the gloom. There's almost never gloom without something glinting or gleaming whenever you get gloom uh, in Tolkien. It's a, it's a pairing which is extremely reliable. Uh, and I love it both, uh, both, um, both for its sound and for its meaning. I, I, think it's, I think it's really fun. Anyway, okay. And his eyes glinted in the gloom. I am an aborigine, that's what I am, the aborigine of this land. Struck out at once, I have spoken a mort of languages, and called myself by many names. Mark my words, my merry friends, Tom was here before the river or the trees. Tom remembers the first acorn and the first raindrop. He made paths before the big people, and saw the little people arriving. He was here before the kings and the graves, and the ghosts changed to barrow whites, Really notice not zombies, ghosts are Barrowites, right? And the Barrowites, when the elves passed westward, Tom was here already, before the seas were bent. He saw the sun rise in the west, and the moon following, before the new order of days was made. He knew the dark under the stars when it was fearless, before the dark lord came from outside. Okay, notice this, so pay close attention here. He was here before the kings and the graves and the barrow whites. When the elves passed westward, Tom was here already. Before the seas were bent, Numenor, okay, he saw the sun rise in the west and the moon following before the new order of days was made. The new order of days was made at the... So these all seem to be references to Tolkien's own mythology, right? Um, The elves passing westward, the seas being bent... Uh, the sun rising in the west. You're like, wait a second, why is the sun rising in the west? Well, the sun did rise in the west from Valinor, right? Um, uh, before the new order of days was made. So that's uh, the reference to after the destruction of the trees, right? When the sun and when the when the sun and the moon are made, um, that began the new counting of the. You know, those were called the days of the sun or the years of the sun, right? So they begin to count 
days differently when the sun and moon come out. He knew the dark under the stars when it was fearless before the dark lord came from outside. Okay? Um... <laughs> Josh just said, wait, the moon rose first. Exactly! You got it! That's exactly... So, um, in the commentary, Christopher Tolkien is troubled by this passage. Here's Christopher. In The Fellowship of the Ring, Tom Bombadil calls himself eldest, not aborigine. Um, you know, and he refers us to the notes that we quoted before. And the reference here to his having seen the sunrise in the west and the moon following was dropped, though Tom remembers the first acorn and first raindrop, which was retained, stays the same. These words are extremely surprising. Christopher Tolkien is surprised by this. Why? For in the Quintus Silmarillion, which my father had only set aside at the end of the previous year, remember this is what we just read in The Lost Road, right? Um, so in the Quintus Silmarillion, it is told that Rana the moon was first wrought and made ready and first rose into the region of the stars and was the eldest of the lights, the elder of the lights, as was Silpian of the trees. And the moon first rose as Fingolfin set foot upon Middle-earth, but the sun when he entered Mithrim. Christopher Tolkien is troubled. Wait a second. What does he mean? Why would he say the sun rose first and the moon followed? That's not how it happened. He just wrote that. Notice Christopher Tolkien is not quoting from the what's going to be the published Silmarillion, right? He is looking at the Silmarillion as it existed in Tolkien's mind in the moment that he wrote that Tom Bombadil chapter. And in that Silmarillion, it doesn't work. It contradicts it, right? Oh, dear. Now Brandon is asking, what does he mean by outside? Exactly! That's Christopher's next question. Christopher just can't let this go. Tom Bombadil was there during the Ages of the Stars, before Morgoth came back to Middle-earth after the destruction of the trees. It is to this event that he referred in his words retained in the Fellowship of the Ring, he knew the dark under the stars when it was fearless before the Dark Lord came from outside. No, so is it to this event that he refers? Right. Okay, so the darkness under the... When was the dark under the stars fearless? Right? So, under the stars, before the sun and moon, possibly before the trees. Is it when Morgoth was imprisoned? Right? Uh, and so, before Morgoth returned. So, here's Tom Bombadil, right, in his little patch of ground, and Morgoth is over, you know, Melkor is, is, is imprisoned in Mandos, right? And so, but they've got the stars over there in Middle-earth during the, during the ages of the trees. Over there in Middle-earth, they've got the stars and, and they're fearless under the... Is that what he means? Right? It must be said that it seems unlikely that Bombadil would refer to Valinor across the sea as outside, especially since this was long ages before the seas were bent, when Numenor was drowned. So he rejects that theory. No, no, that can't be the time that Tom's referring to here. It would seem much more natural to interpret the word as meaning the outer dark, the void, beyond the walls of the world. Of the world. Totally agree. When he says, from outside, capital O, he's got to mean the outer dark, the void, outside the walls of the world. Clearly. Totally agree with you, Chris. I'm right with you. But in the mythology as it was when my father began the Lord of the Rings, back to the Quintus Omerillion, right? Melkor entered the world with the other Valar and never left it until his final defeat. 
It was only with his return to the Silmarillion after the Lord of the Rings was completed that there entered the account found in the published work of the First War, in which Melkor was defeated by Tolkien and driven into the Outer Dark, from which he returned in secret while the Valar were resting from their labors on the Isle of Elmerin and overthrew the lamps, ending the Spring of Arda. It seems, then, that either Bombadil must in fact refer to Morgoth's return from Valinor to Middle-earth, in company with Ungoliant and bearing the Silmarils, or else that my father had already at this date developed a new conception of the earliest history of Melkor. Oh, man. Like, how do we solve this problem? You can see, you see how annoyed Christopher sounds by all this, right? He's like, it's just, gosh, oh, man. How could... Why would he say these things? I mean, first the sun is coming up before the moon. It's like cats and dogs living together, right? And then now he's like messing up the. So, and and by the so this passage from uh, um, it was only with his return to the Silmarillion after the Lord of the Rings was completed. My paraphrase of the rest of that paragraph. Christopher Tolkien is saying, perhaps, O oh reader, you are remembering your published Silmarillion and thinking, no, but wait a second. There was a time when Melkor was in the Outer Dark, right? Maybe that's what he was talking about. Tom Bombadil is remembering the time when Melkor was in the Outer Dark, right? So Christopher is acknowledging that would seem to be an, a valid interpretation. And indeed, that's how I had always understood that passage, right? When I had, you know, in, in, in the time of my life when I had read the Fellowship of the, you know, I had read the Lord of the Rings and I had read the Silmarillion, but before I had read the Return of the Shadow, right? That is always how I interpreted that passage. I'm like, okay, no, I know just what he's talking about, right? He's talking about that time and, you know, when, 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 you know, before the destruction of the lamps, right? Um, but Christopher's like, oh, contraire. Right? That is an anachronistic interpretation. Right? It's one thing to say that in retrospect, but it can't be true at the time. When my father wrote this, he hadn't thought of that. Like, that hadn't happened yet. So his only theory, Christopher's only theory for how this could possibly have happened is that, like, does this mean that dad was at this point, like, totally coming up with a whole new history of the beginning of Melkor, which he was later going to write, you know, in the later Silmarillion material, but, like, this is the moment when he made that change? Maybe. Um, <laughs> Brandon thinks Christopher knows too much. Yeah, exactly. Brandon, that's exactly the controversial thing that I'm going to say. Um, my controversial... Analysis of Christopher's bebother, uh, bebotherment, bebotheritude, bebothering, bebothering. My controversial interpretation of Christopher Tolkien's bebothering in this passage is I think he's falling into a classic trap, the same trap that people fall into with The Hobbit all the time. The, you know, people who meet Elrond and hear about Gondolin in chapter 3 of The Hobbit. And they've read The Lord of the Rings, and they've read The Silmarillion. And they uh, leap to the perfectly understandable conclusion that this is... They know what he's talking about, right? Oh, yeah, I know Elrond. I know Gondolin, right? No, you don't. If you read carefully what he says about Elrond and about Gondolin in chapter 3 of The Hobbit, you'll see it contradicts 
what the Silmarillion at any time says. Um, there is no version of the Silmarillion um, contemporary with the writing of the Hobbit or otherwise which harmonizes with the details given about Elrond and Gondolin in The Hobbit. Rather, it seems clear that... But again, but it's really tempting. It's hard to resist. If you know the Silmarillion, and you know it really well, it's really hard to resist that temptation to make those connections. But Oh, I know what he's referring to here, right? I see how this fits in to the whole, you know, structure of Tolkien's subcreation, right? No. No, and with The Hobbit, I've said it many times. Instead, the pattern seems to be that Tolkien is just recycling. It's not... It doesn't fit together. It's not the exactly the same Gondolin. It's like it. It recalls it, right? He's taking the Gondolin concept and integrating it into the new story, and it's a different thing, and it, with a different history in this new story. Right? It's a recycled concept. It's not part of the same story. Same with Elrond. I would argue, same with the Dark Lord came from outside. Same with the sun and moon. We see him recycling concepts, right? I mean, all of those things. Let's, 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 let's go back for a second. Right? He made paths before the big people and saw the little people arriving. He was here before the kings and the graves and the barrow whites. When the elves passed westward, Tom was here already. Before the seas were bent, he saw the sunrise. Notice how Christopher gets annoyed at that, too. Like, the elves passed westward way before the seas were bent. That's out of sequence, right? It should be, uh, uh, when the elves pass westward, then, then, then the sun rises, and then, no, wait, no, then the moon rises, then the sun rises, and then, and the new order of days is made, and then the seas are bent, right? Right, that's, uh, anyway, but all of these elements, the elves passing westward, the bending of the seas, the sun rising in the west instead of the east, and the moon following it, right? That is, the idea of the sun and moon pursuing each other, following each other across the sky, that's a recycled concept, too. It's the moon following the sun, uh, the moon does follow the sun, remember? If you know the Silmarillion stories, you'll recall the moon is in pursuit of the sun, right? Um, because the moon has a crush on the sun, but it's not requited, right? Uh, there's, like a, there's, there's some unrequited action going on between the moon and sun. Um, and so it pursues the sun ac- across. It, it does follow the moon, right? Pursue it, not come after it in sequence, right? But that idea of the moon following after the sun, recycled concept, right? New order of days, concept, right? Dark under the stars that is fearless concept. The Dark Lord coming from outside. All of those are concepts that he's recycling. In other words, I would argue really strongly, I do think that Christopher Tolkien's intimate knowledge of the Silmarillion tradition is getting in his way here. He is so used to piecing these things together. He is so used to sort of showing the evolution in the Silmarillion story by looking at these different fragments and how they work together that I think he's making an unwarranted assumption here. I say this very cautiously because Christopher Tolkien knows this stuff 10,000 times better than I do. But I do think in this case he might be blinded a little bit by his own knowledge, right? Um, one of the things I said at the very beginning, especially coming as we have done from the, the studying of the first five volumes of the history of Middle-earth prior to this, I've been saying I'm going to be really interested to see 
where does the Silmarillion tradition come in? By the time we get to the published Lord of the Rings, this story is going to be harmonized with the Silmarillion, right? Tolkien is going to stop recycling things and begin making this into a contiguous story with the Silmarillion. And my question at the beginning, one of my questions was, when's that going to happen, right? How does that happen? How does that come in? Because in The Hobbit it didn't happen, right? Um, but we know during the course of the, tra- of, the, of the writing of The Lord of the Rings that transition's going to occur. My argument here would be, it hasn't happened yet, right? We can see, I think... This Tom Bomb this Tom Bombadil passage suggests that there's still the firewall is still up. The firewall between the Hobbit and the new Hobbit tradition and the Silmarillion material. Um and I think that Christopher's overlooking that in his bebotherment. Um and James, of course, you're absolutely right. Um uh Tom Bombadil is another recycled concept anyway. Absolutely. I mean, we're in a completely recycled context, right? With Tom and Goldberry and Old Man Willow and the Barrel Whites, right? Uh, recycled from the poem, of course. Um, yeah, yeah. And Nancy, you're right. What makes it frustrating is that most of it is very close. It's so tantalizing. I agree. It's just a couple details that are different. But but again, I would say just like The Hobbit, Elrond looks almost exactly like Elrond from The Silmarillion, and 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 Gondolin sounds almost exactly like Gondolin from The Silmarillion, but it but not quite. Um. Uh. Yeah. So, anyway, uh, that's it. I will end on that high note of me claiming that Christopher Tolkien gets this whole passage all wrong, uh, which is a which might not seem like a hugely controversial statement to make, but uh, makes me feel kind of weak in the knees. I gotta say, if I'm gonna call out Christopher Tolkien and be like, "Dude, oh no, you totally blew this passage." Um, I am always very hesitant to second-guess Christopher, because uh, like I said, nobody knows this stuff better than Christopher. But, um, <clears throat> uh, anyway, there we are. Oh, see, Yana, you were thinking the same thing, too? Well, there you have it. Right, there you go. See, Yana says the same thing. So if, if it's like me and Yana against Christopher, he's, he, he, he doesn't stand a chance, Yana. Absolutely. Okay. <clears throat> On to Bree next time. I want to I want to spend a lot of time looking at all the action in Bree, okay? Um, so that we're going to spend the whole beginning of class next time looking at all the events that he just throws in there uh, to their first visit to Bree because it's kind of amazing. Um, so we'll do that next time, and uh, uh, hopefully move on towards towards Rivendell. I continue my uh, uh, not quite getting further behind <coughs> pace as we go through. Thanks everybody uh, for, for joining me tonight and I will see you guys next week uh, for more, more uh, interpretive excitement and hopefully more funny poems. Thanks everybody. Good night now. Bye.